Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Stanley K. Ridgely is professor of management at Drexel University. He is a former military intelligence officer who served in Europe. His new book is Brutal Minds, the Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Ridgely. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I, I presume that as a former intelligence officer, you don't use the term uh, brainwashing lightly or casually. It's deliberate here. Well, it certainly is, and it certainly describes uh, what's going on on America's college campuses. It's a term that uh, is not really uh, colloquial. It appears in the DSM-5, or the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, it, the more formal name, I guess, for it would be thought reform, a thought reform program which seeks to change a person's belief system by way of psychological manipulation and behavior modification techniques well-established, uh, and the psychological damage that it can uh, inflict on students and faculty and staff, of course, is, uh, is substantial. And, and the techniques, that they've been codified. They're, they're, one can become experts yeah. uh, in, in this, and maybe in a less formal way, this is an accurate description of a lot of college campus activity. Well, I, I think so, and I think that uh, in my book, Brutal Minds, describes who the villains are, how they go about doing it, uh, where they're doing it, who their targets are, and the really sinister part of this, and I don't use the word sinister lightly, is that it, is, it gets better. They get better at what they're doing year by year because they have uh, new iterations of college students coming in every year. They get called on one point of what they do. They'll refine it a little bit. They don't ever backtrack off of it. They'll refine it. It gets better. And then the next iteration of college students, they, uh, they're able to inflict this type of uh, enterprise on them uh, more effectively. Now... One could say coercive mind, manipulative mind, punitive mind, but no, that, that's not the word, brutal. Brutal minds. Uh, why, why go, why raise it to the level of brutality? Well, because I think what's being inflicted on uh, folks who go through these programs uh, is indeed intellectual brutality. I'm not referring to people who use a truncheon or, or uh, electrodes to the, to the temples, that kind of thing. I'm referring to intellectual brutality. And anyone who does not believe in the university as a repository of the best that has been thought and said, to go back to Matthew Arnold, and the idea that we're going to create our new knowledge, legitimate knowledge, and advance the, the frontier of knowledge, pushing back the darkness, if you will, and instead rather believes the university as a uh, crucible of indoctrination, whereby we're 
going to change the university into something that is more solitary with regard to our version of the ultimate truth. Uh, and that is something that was really made manifest to me when I was a graduate student at Duke University when Frederick Jameson, who is a you know, fairly, still alive, a fairly prominent Marxist uh, intellectual, said while I was there, he said, the purpose of the university is uh, to train the cadres, Marxist cadres of the future for the future struggles that we will be engaged in. And that kind of communicated to me, and I didn't realize at the time how systematic that this type of thing was and how widespread and deeply ingrained this perspective of the university. No, we're not here to engage in a neutral arena of you know the marketplace of ideas we always hear about and may the best idea win and the bad ideas are ushered to the exits. No, 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 no. We are engaged in creating a crucible whereby certain ideas are excluded and other ideas are exalted, no matter how wanting they may be. Were you an undergrad at Duke? No, I was an undergrad at another institution down the road, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, which is also known for its uh, kind of, I, I would say, today's woke uh, wokeness. Uh, and I was a graduate student at Duke University. Okay, okay. Yeah, Duke, the Duke English Department uh, <laughs> with, with Jameson and then another, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who well, actually was one of the founders of queer theory. Uh, so in 1990-91, Duke, it was it was the place. It was it was where That's, theory was happening. Were you in? But you weren't in English, though, were you? No, no, no. I was there at that particular time when Stanley Fish constructed one of the most bizarre English departments uh, the uh, higher education has ever seen. Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, uh, Franklin Trickia. By the way, Franklin Trickia, the Marxist poet, I think he finally came around. He actually returned to his roots. Yeah, I, I was very impressed with that. Um, so you know, an illustration of integrity. But yes, Fish constructed in a, a, a real a real uh, bailiwick, and it, it fell to earth, as Lingua Franca revealed, I think, in 1994-95 in an article, the English department that fell to earth. These were inflated egos with bizarre, at the time it was deconstruction was the big mantra, um, with uh, uh, bizarre theories, and they had these huge egos, and they couldn't get along with each other. There was great internal strife in that department, and thank goodness it finally it fell apart. Yeah, uh you, you mentioned Lentricchia and his his coming out in uh, criticism of the trend that he was so much a part of was really based upon him finding, this leads into my next point, him finding that uh, this, what we would now call woke, let's just say politicized approach to things, wasn't producing good, careful readers. And he would he would sit there in poetry classes and try to do the old kind of explications, analyses, exegeses that he was accustomed to from teaching in the 70s. And the students were, were kind of hard headed. They were I mean, the, the, the brainwashing did not produce a certain flexibility of interpretation. And one of the things that you note about the brutalists, we'll call them on campus, they're not superior thinkers. They, they aren't elegant speakers. Uh, they don't have a great deal of erudition. And they're, they're certainly not persuasive personalities either. They are mediocrities. And that's your term. You call them mediocrities, and they have formed a, quote, dull bureaucracy. Now, this is a big question, Stanley. Take your time answering this. How is it that a group of administrators who are not particularly talented, they may have a certain animal cunning within an institution, but 
They're not impressive intellects. How in the world have they prospered? Well, to, to just initially, the, the answer that comes to mind is they have, they're prospered by virtue of the, the strategy of the hedgehog. They got one thing, they have one thing that they do well, and that is they can maneuver well in a bureaucracy. And they have created, and I will say they, I'm referring to people in the education schools um, who are kind of like the, um, the progenitors of this, um, this bureaucracy. Uh, they're actually quite literally the creators of this bureaucracy. When I say they, I'm referring to education schools. They created, beginning around 20 years ago uh, in education schools, you know, they, they're important people. They think they know, uh, they want to extend their influence and they know best for what's the university. And so they created uh, advanced degrees and degree programs in student affairs, educational leadership, higher education management, things like that, that were designed to create people to fulfill or to fill positions in the university bureaucracies created just for them. And they began graduating these people and these people would come back onto the campuses. Now, as you know, education schools, and these are my words, not yours, the bottom feeders of, of higher education. They have the buck privates. This is well known. I, I refer to this in my, in my book. Uh, I call them the faces at the bottom of the barrel. And they have produced this cadre of mediocrities in student affairs. And they have begun, they have, um, pipeline to these people in a kind of an incestuous inbred hiring process into the universities. Their numbers are increasing. I would go so far as to refer to Louis Althusser, the, uh, the, the um, orthodox Marxist, who, who uh, basically said that capitalism is a system that reproduces itself. And on the campuses, it reproduces itself. It generates its own cadres of practitioners. And in the same way, in this Althusserian manner, these uh, student affairs bureaucrats are, are, are multiplying in a process that reproduces itself through this incestuous inbred hiring process. They come into the university and they get, they, they don't just want to, you know, to uh, make dorm room assignments and they don't want to just keep the pizza hot and the microphone sound system ready for karaoke night. They don't want to just tell people the way to the dining hall. They want to teach. Well, they're not qualified to teach in academic affairs. So over in student affairs, they begin to teach in a parallel curriculum called the co-curriculum, a series of workshops, of caucuses, of uh, seminars that they uh, can teach. And many times, students aren't even aware that they're in a caucus that, and the person at the front of the room is really not a faculty member, but one of these incestuous hirelings who has come in to teach racial caucuses, difficult dialogues, the kind of brainwashing sessions that I refer to and describe in detail in Brutal Minds. Uh, this is a really, a, it's a wonderful system if you are on their side. The system of the co-curriculum whereby we have fake faculty, fake courses, fake curriculum. We have even fake transcripts in the case of say Rutgers University, St. John's University, Westchester University. They issue fake transcripts for this out of classroom experience. And this is how these mediocrities begin to have begun to and are now increasing their influence and their power on the college campuses. Uh, you have cadres coming out of the least impressive part of the university in academic affairs, education schools, that are now being elevated into positions of power, as you 
uh, uh, described that they are mediocrities, generally speaking, and I like the animal cunning term. I use the term feral cunning, but uh, you know, the idea of animal cunning, yeah, they, they know how to repro reproduce their bureaucracy, and they know how to inflict a brainwashing on college students um, uh, 24, basically 24-7 in the case of those who actually live on the campuses. I think one of the values of your book is to show that, uh, to speak of the professors of doing the brainwashing, that they're actually not the major players on that. And those professors who do, you note, tend to be awfully blunt and, and uh, <laughs> uh, inexpert. And, and, and students actually can easily avoid them. Right. They can't so easily avoid the co-curriculum, as, as you put it. And that these organizations that are sort of parasites on, on campus, literally parasites of activity, uh, you've actually done some nice, almost investigative expose of them. What is the American College Personnel Association? Who are they? What, what does it do? <laughs> well, I have my APCA uh, mug right here. Uh, if, if your audience can see it, I, I enjoy my coffee in it virtually every morning. Uh, their motto, this, this is a professional organization. I'll get to their motto in a second. It's a professional organization, very much like other professional associations, of people who have, a, you know, are in a certain job and they meet to network and to build their careers around this sort of thing. That, as far as it goes, is okay. We're all members of those types of organizations, the Academy of Management, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with the ACPA and its sister organization, the NASPA, um, both organizations are indistinguishable in terms of what they want to do. The problem with this is that virtually every student affairs person in America who has graduated out of these programs and serves in a bureaucracy uh, is a member or a fellow traveler with the ACPA. The ACPA is where the um, sausage is made as far as the ideology is concerned. These are the preservers, the keepers of the ideology. What ideology am I talking about? I'm talking about crypto-Maoist ideology that comes out of the education schools designed to bring people to what Paulo Freire called critical consciousness as opposed to say you and I, Mark, are we, we, we are we, we are victims of false consciousness, which means only that we haven't achieved critical consciousness. And this, by the way, is what is meant by woke. Okay, you achieve critical consciousness, you come to a higher plane of thinking. Well, this organization, the ACPA, far from being simply an amalgam of bureaucrats who get together and pass each other's you know, platitudes back and forth, they have become centers of power off campus that have great influence on the campuses, okay? They run conferences, they run, they have journals. I have one of the journals right here, you know. It's, uh, you know, Campus Racial Justice and Decolonization. Um, About Campus is another one, Journal of Student Affairs. And in these journals, which are not, you know, they're not uh, knowledge creation journals by any stretch, they propound the ideology, and this is the forefront of this ideology of changing the university into that crucible of indoctrination. They have conferences where the student affairs people come and they, they hobnob with each other. But the most important thing, I think, is that these two organizations are the organizations that set the standards for education school graduate programs in student affairs. And so we see a circle of vice here that uh, where you have education schools, student affairs bureaucracies, off-campus groups that then set the standards for the education schools. And I think that their goal is really captured in their motto, which is 
boldly transforming higher education. What are they transform? How, how are they transforming it? Well, they're going to decolonize the university as if it were colonized in the first place, right? It's the same lingo that we hear on the streets right now with uh, the, these uh, pro-Hamas demonstrations of students who are, by the way, the least talented, least um, uh, capable, most violent prone, most bombastic and most morally corrupt students that we can ever, they're, they're on the college campuses. They are mouthing the slogans that originated, that have originated in the uh, these off-campus uh, uh, professional associations and that are then taught in education schools. It's really, as I said, a brilliant strategy if you are part of that and you want to transform the university, this is how you would go about doing it. So, so they, as you say, they, they set the terms, they lay out the mm -hmm. philosophy, the vision yeah. of, of ac the academic training of people yes. who end up in student affairs, uh, yes. DEI offices. Uh, and do, do those people who become part of the campus, who've gone through the, the program, do they contract in certain ways with these organizations, maybe to come on campus to run seminars? Or do, I mean, to 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 hire consultants. Uh, does the does the fraternization continue between on campus and this off campus group? Well, yes, it does. It does very much so. Um, you'll find that faculty members uh, on the college campuses in education schools, so, certainly in sociology and social work and that sort of thing, are members of the ACPA, and they hire their buddies in the ACPA and in NASPA to come onto the campus and to deliver these types of, of programs. Courageous Conversation is an example uh, of, of one of these. Now, you, of course, know that there's no conversation, courageous or otherwise, that goes on in a difficult no, no, dialogue. No, uh, Stanley, say that there is, yeah. there is conversation until you agree with me. That, that's the conversation. Let's dialogue. Well, yeah, well, and, yeah. and when you agree with me, then the dialogue's over. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the, yeah, well, I've been in these things, Mark, and, and I'll tell you one. They lay out ground rules. Uh, their idea of laying out a ground rule, and I'd love to be able to do this in, say, a public debate. I say, okay, we're going to have ground rules for our debate, and the ground rules are this. You can't disagree with me. And if you do disagree with me, I'm going to accuse you of what, I, what they like to call resistance. This is they have, there's a whole resistance literature that has there's been as uh, a whole genre of literature resistance. Here's how you will be faced or what you'll be faced with, and we'll call this resistance. Uh, and this is simply something that has to be overcome. It's not something that is legitimate disagreement in the marketplace of ideas. No, in this crucible of indoctrination. Uh, you have to uh, overcome this resistance. And I've been told this, you know, well, we have ground rules. And I'll express, I would express some doubts about this or the factual info. No, 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 you're, not, you're violating the ground rules of our discussion. It's actually quite surreal. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a real, uh, uh, an, an amazing construct that they have here, where they, and a very incestuous and inbred, in that they will then hire their buddies. And I mentioned Courageous Conversations because there's a fellow by the name of Singleton who uh, created this. And of course, he is brought onto the college campus to conduct these types of, uh, these types of, of things. And he's paid for this. And I, you know, the, the network, if you were to draw a network, a, like a schematic of it, it would be absolutely fascinating to see the links uh, between this. This is really how non-qualified, unqualified, non-academics get onto the campus and have access to students. And, and this is yeah, go ahead. And and how does their influence eventually make it to the professors and into classrooms? 
what kind of what kind of pressures are are put upon the professors themselves? Well, one of the things that you'll find is that uh, students are being taught um, in these sessions, and of course by certain professors. You mentioned, of course, right, quite rightly, that the, the vast majority of professors don't do this. They're incapable of doing this. They simply don't have the wherewithal, even if they wished to do so. Uh, there are some radical types like Brittany Cooper at Rutgers and George Yancey at Emory and Ricky Lee Allen at New Mexico, Zeus Leonardo, who has a great name, by the way, Zeus Leonardo out at, uh, out at Berkeley. Uh, they, they do the uh, brainwashing in the campuses, uh, on the, in their classrooms, but by and, large, uh, by and large, the brainwashing is done by these unqualified mediocrities who know how to do one thing, and that is propound the ideology. They're like the stormtroopers. They're the stormtrooper class. They don't have to be able to think deeply or for too long. All they have to do is to train people to mouth the, uh, the slogans that you hear on the streets even now uh, you know, uh, about decolonization or settler colonialism, that kind of thing. It's come right out of U.S. education schools. That's where it's coming from. It's not, it's not some deep philosophical you know, standpoint. Um, it's au courant. It's of the day. It's du jour. And if you can't remember that, if you can't remember that slogan, just say no, no justice, no peace, and and that will always serve you well in this type of gener uh, this type of uh, activity. Here is a here's a book I have. It's called Contested Issues in Troubled Times. Uh, it's student affairs dialogues on equity, civility, and safety. And in this book, there are several articles on how student affairs people can encourage students to engage in activism how they can be supported in their activism, to go out on the street. I don't find that as being a, an intellectual activity, anything that's going to cultivate a, a, uh, a improved human condition. Um, and so you'll see that there is an actual link from student affairs people to students getting them to go out there. And I guarantee you, they are not telling students to go out and celebrate the Second Amendment or anything like that. No, it, it, it's, uh, it's, no. A, it's a kind of a, a hate-filled um, agenda. That, uh, that you'll find. So s faculty can play along with this sort of thing. Um, I will tell you that the pressures that the faculty face come from places like the DEI office, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion office. So many of these people come right out of the education schools. Yeah. This, and so, so, sociology uh, as well. The soft side of campus, as I, as I call it. And the pressures that you're feeling, on, that we feel, feel on the campuses as faculty, is the uh, elevation of these bureaucrats to positions of power. Now, you'll find a book right now by Michael Berube and Jennifer Ruth called It's Not Free Speech. And you'll find the strategy, the tactics laid out to erect on the college campuses a committee. Now, they call this committee an academic freedom committee, but it's really not. It's really an academic suppression um, a committee. And it's, it's uh, made up of people like Berube and Ruth. Uh, he's, at, he's at Penn State. She's at Portland State. And, and, and assorted, I'm sorry, assorted bureaucrats from the DEI office who have the, quote, expertise. And this committee will evaluate faculties on their speech, on their curricula, on their syllabus, and certainly in their hiring to ensure that it is in line with uh, diversity, uh, diversity goals. Right, right. You know, what, one of the... Another value of your book is where you lay out some of the some of the brainwashing, uh, specific brainwashing techniques. You 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 list the several several criteria: uh, milieu control, uh, demand for purity, etc. And it, it's actually quite uh, clarifying and also horrifying. 
Uh, I've seen them at work. Uh, you've got a metaphor in there, freezing, unfreezing. What does that describe? Well, the, the list of conditions for the thought reform that you began to describe comes from Robert J. Lifton, who was an expert on thought reform as practiced in the United States and by the communist Chinese back in the 50s and 60s. And the technique was, was um, I get borrowed from Kurt Lewin, who was a social psychologist in the 1940s, who created the idea, and this is his word, if you ever wonder where it came from, re-education. He's the guy who created the idea of re we're going to re-educate criminals so that they don't have this recidivist uh, uh, posture toward their crime. And so we're going to use encounter group therapy. We're going to unfreeze their belief system. We're going to change it, and then we're going to refreeze it. And we're going to do this through specific uh, identifiable techniques. It's basically thought reform. It's basically the brainwash. That's how it works, and that's what the Chinese communists used. That's what the North Koreans used, and this is all laid out in the famous uh, sociologist Edgar Schein, who is still alive. He's a wonderful academic. He outlined it all in his book, Coercive Persuasion, in which he drew the specific link between Kurt Lewin's unfreezing, changing, and refreezing to the communist Chinese, and this is something that is adopted by uh, social justice educators and social justice educators, it's there, there's no doubt about it. I've got several man several of their manuals in which they actually they actually refer to Kurt Lewin. And, uh, and they lay out their three-stage brainwashing, the unfreezing, refreezing, and um, uh, changing. And um, it, it does it, it happens in three stages. They change the terms though, so it doesn't alarm anyone. They call it defending, surrendering, and transforming. And they're quite specific. You can look at uh, chapter four in this book called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice by Marianne Adams, Leanne Bell, and Pat Griffin. And in this book, in chapter four, they lay out the three-stage brainwash program. They're, and they articulate specifically, explicitly, how they're going to change a student's belief system. I'll give you the last far part of it, transforming which is refreezing, quote, a new set of beliefs becomes home base for interpreting experience and creating meaning. The past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference. That is a description of the successful brainwash in the, in the uh, language uh, utilized by the folks who propound this. Um, oh, okay, okay, Stan. Yeah. Well, what you're describing here yeah. should be a violation of uh, the Institutional Review Board, perhaps. You raised the issue. You're on, you're on that committee. And yeah. that review board is supposed to oversee the humane treatment of experimental subjects. Uh, maybe I should add this to the, the bigger question, whether there are any legal steps that parents and students may take to say, leave me the hell alone. I didn't come here. I'm not paying for this. I'm paying here to be educated, not re-educated. What, what, I mean, can anything be done here? Well, certainly. Uh, I am on the Institutional Review Board at, at my university, and uh, it, this really walks that tightrope along the, you know, the uh, idea of what is quasi-legal and what is legal, what is illegal. And all it's going to take is for a student to begin to, and I, and I call for this in my book, uh, for students to basically look, you give me an informed consent form. You tell me, which has to have the description of what's going to happen here, before I participate in this, because if you don't do this, and you don't write it down and look for my signature here, then I'm going to walk out here and I'm going to advise everyone else to walk out. Now, I have a student, one student, who said, 
her father said, you know, you're not going to go into any college judicial board of any kind without legal representation. I don't care what they say, that you have to go in there alone and be at the mercy of these folks. You're going to go in there with a lawyer. Now, that's the kind of parental supervision and involvement that I love. Okay, I'd love to see that. And that's the kind of, of uh, not combative, but the kind of confident attitude that I inculcate in students who come to me. And in student, I, I deal with students outside of class in a number of roles. I am the TPUSA, Turning Point USA uh, advisor on our campus. I'm a the faculty advisor for the Georgian Students Organization. I'm a faculty member advisor of, uh, of a fraternity. And I have other roles that I play. And in fact, I'm a I'm not, a, I won't use the term, father confessor, I will say, no, students come to me and say, hey, I have a problem here in this class, and I will help them resolve that problem within the, within the bounds of, of the system. But students can, and parents can certainly protect themselves against this, this sort of thing. And all it's going to take is one student who, who takes this up the line and, and, and initiates legal action outside the bounds of the university's uh, boundaries here yeah. to make this stuff go away. I can give you the name of a, of a brainwash program that's extant on almost every college campus in America. It's called the Privilege Walk. Uh, the Privilege Walk is basically, it's a game. This is, they call it a game, but they being the student affairs. But it's not a game. It is an interrogation couched in the format of a game in which students are lined up and you're asked a series of leading questions. And if you answer yes, you walk forward. If you answer no, you step backwards. And these are very personal questions about parents, about uh, your personal life, about your income, about your, your history. And at the end of the questions, you have a visual uh, display of who has privilege and who does not. But you also have a lot of information that you have provided these people to use against you down the line, and they will use it against you. Yeah. Uh you know, one thing you note is that some students who really go with the brainwashing, it, it becomes almost a conversion experience for them. They come mm -hmm. out of it with uh, a great deal of relief and commitment and moral energy, you know, like Paul after his, yeah. you know, after his yeah. conversion. Are those students forever lost? Well, no, no, two things. No, I don't think they're forever lost, and uh, not, not at all. Not, no more so than, say, students who are, or people who have been recruited uh, unawares into a cult can be, you know, brought back to reality. Um, cults are under, uh, cults, well, I should say the brainwash, the only two places there is practiced in America are in cults and on the American college campus, and those who find themselves entrapped in a cult can be rescued via you know, kidnapping and deprogramming or by virtue of simply coming to their own senses because they, are, they seek out other sources of information. Uh, one of the points or one of the activities that the brainwashers on our campuses do is they try to, in the process of refreezing, they try to occupy students in activities that will reinforce this new belief system. They call it doing the work. You may have heard this before. Do the work of anti-racism, et cetera, et cetera. And this is designed to curtail the amount, unconstrict the amount of information they receive that would debunk the nonsense that they've received, and also to reinforce it by, quote, doing this work. Um, I have in my website a you know, DEI deprogramming uh, article where it shows, uh, it shows how to identify the, um, the, the 
false and pseudoscientific aspects of DEI and how you can avoid it and how you can pull back from that and how you can reveal to people who have been negatively affected by this and, and yeah. bring them back to, to a larger reality. So, yeah, there are things that we can do. The book is Brutal Minds, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. Professor Ridgely, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much.